This is a Triple J podcast. What would happen if we had two suns in our solar system? If you wore a bikini on the moon, would you burn to a crisp? And what is a lightning ball? Welcome back to Science with Dr. Carl, where we get into these questions and more. I'm Lucy Smith. Let's jump in. Carl, how are you? I'm very good and I'm especially enjoying the fact that I can fix up some errors that we let slip past last time. Errors, but also follow-ups as well. Follow-ups. So if you want to know what these follow-ups are, you just got to listen back to last week's science episode, which we have for you on demand at Science with Dr. Carl, wherever you get your podcasts or on the Triple J app. So there's a couple of different questions that we got last week, some topics. Let's start with the lightning, Carl. Can you give us a reminder of what the question was? Um, What happens when lightning hits water? And I had to go back to 1941 to get the answer. So what we would like is that uh, when you, you have some uh, bit of ocean and you've got some scientists sitting there, uh, and by the way, with lightning, only 3% happens over the oceans because the little tiny particles of sea spray of salt water tend to short it out, so you don't have a lot of lightning on the ocean, mostly it's on land. So what you want is a bit of ocean and you know that there's some lightning going to hit there in, say, half an hour. You send out your divers, you count how many fish there are in a a block, you know, 100 metres by 100 metres, you then come back and then you wait for the lightning to hit and then you go out there immediately and count how many dead fish you happen. Uh, It doesn't happen like that, right? So lightning just happens wherever it wants. And what we have is something going back to 1941 where in New York State... They had some trout fisheries on land, big tanks, like five by 15 metres, and they got hit by lightning over a five-year period twice. And the second time, a scientist went out there immediately and found that in this five-metre by 15-metre tank... Most of the fish were dead, but there's a, the rest of them, it's sort of like a bit more than half, the rest of them were kind of not well and were sort of partially paralysed at the tail of their body and a few of them survived for a week, but they were all dead by one month. And then he went and did autopsies and found that internally they had hemorrhages and ruptures of their liver and their lungs and their heart. A terrible shockwave had come through. Wow. Was that the one that killed them? looking at the fish who died immediately, was that the thing that killed them or was it the lightning interfering with the electrical conduction of the heart? We don't know. And then with regard to people on land, we've got something from Thailand in 1966 which runs along the lines of lightning hit the water. If people had their heads out of the water, they were severely injured. So you're thinking, okay, so most of their body is being lifted up to, say, 400,000 volts by the lightning strike, but their head is different because it's out of the water. Underwater, they were okay, but they were deafened for a while. Wow. Outside the water. And that's kind of all we got apart from reports that, and this is frustrating, like in 2005, there were four people who were in the water off Florida and they got hit by lightning and you go back and you look at the, the newspaper reports and they got hit by lightning and they were a bit crook. And do you, then, then you try and find out what happened in the hospital and the follow-up medical care, you got nothing. Mm. So that was one thing I was able to follow up on on lightning and we had the um, female person using uh, antibiotics for her acne. Yes. I forgot to mention that if she takes them orally, she's of course mucking up her gut, Mm. all the bacteria there. But if she takes them on her skin, it won't have any effect there. And finally, the last one um, is activated charcoal carbon. Is that good at absorbing? damaging or detoxifying the toxins associated with viruses. Okay, bacteria are big guys. They can make toxins. 
Uh, viruses don't make toxins. They just come in and take over the running of your body. So uh, thank you very much. And if people want to email me with things I've missed out on, please contact me, drcarl at sydney.edu.au and tell me what I missed out so we can have a better show for everybody. All right, Lockie in Brisbane, you are kicking us off. What do you want to know? If we had two suns equal distance away from the Earth, same as everything at the moment, but the two of them, what would happen? It's one not enough for you, Lockie. <laughs> <laughs> would we get we get twice the sunburn or, oh, or what? Okay. Good point. Yeah, okay, can't. so okay, so firstly, um, in our galaxy, there's around um, three or four hundred thousand million stars and what you can see with the naked eye is about a thousand and you might think there's more but if you actually do the experiment and this was done 2000 years ago you go out on a really clear night with half a dozen of your mates and you lie down on a ground sheet and you have some warm cocoa to keep you happy and then you say okay we're going to divide the sky up into six sectors you know like the cutting a pie and you count them, you get about a thousand stars. It looks like millions, all you get with the naked eye is a thousand. But of all the stars in our galaxy, and you can see with the naked eye, 40% actually are two stars. 40% of all the things are actually two stars orbiting each other and it's not impossible to have two stars, like our sun, orbiting each other. And it's not so much that uh, they would orbit the Earth or the Earth would orbit them, but orbit one of them, but Earth would orbit the combined gravity gravity of both of them. Each of them has about a third of a million times the mass of our sun. So our, sorry, the mass of our Earth. So the sun is a third of a million times the mass of our Earth. So what's really happening is that the two big guys are orbiting each other and Earth is sort of like a a tiny player and it might flip from a stable orbit around one to a stable orbit around the other or it might have a stable orbit about both of them but further out. So it's not a kind of trivial problem. But we are fairly sure that in the nearest star system to us, we've got two stars orbiting each other. That's Proxima Centauri, Alpha Centauri or that whole thing. There's two stars orbiting each other and then there's a third star orbiting both of those and there are planets there. And we've only been watching them for a little while to see how stable they are. So it's kind of a bit of a mess, Dr. Lockie. So we're still learning about this stuff. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Carl. Thank you, Dr. Lockie. Thanks, Lockie. We've got Shay in Wollongong. Now, Shay, let's say you're getting a massage or a facial and you're having to lie down and relax. What's going on? Yeah, so if I get a facial or get my eyelashes or something done and I need to have my eyes closed for a long period of time, my eyes feel like they're shaking side to side, obviously inside my head, and um, causes me to get really dizzy. And I just don't know what could be causing that. Carl? Well, it may well be that you're actually suffering from your eyes going left to right, left to right. And if I was just going to say eyes going left to right, left to right, you're thinking, ha, oh, that's not a fancy word. I want a fancy word. And here it comes, <laughs> nystagmus, N-Y-S. T-A-G-M-U-S. Now, Shay, okay. do, you, now, do you have access to a young baby under the age of about six weeks or so? Uh, not at the moment. I will in a couple of months, one of my girlfriends, yeah. Oh, good, okay. <laughs> well, here's, here's the experiment you do with the baby. And so every doctor that deals with a newborn baby, you do this to make sure everything's wired up properly. Okay. So you hold the baby... You're facing the baby, the baby's facing you, and it's about, you know, half a metre apart. It's not too uncomfortable. And then 
you start spinning around, holding the baby. You don't, you don't lose the baby. There's no damage to the baby, right? You start spinning around uh, on your own vertical axis and you do maybe five circles and then you stop. And you okay. look at the baby's eyes. And what they should do is fast flick, slow return. Fast flick, slow return. And we call, right. we call that nystagmus. Now, it might be that for various reasons you could be having nystagmus or if you want to just talk to ordinary people flicking of the eyes left to right happening to you and what you need is somebody to have a look at your eyes so when you're lying there say okay I'm going to open my eyes now have a look and if they see the eyes flicking uh, then it's worthwhile going to see your GP about it and almost certainly there's nothing major happening but it gives you close to an understanding uh, an intellectual understanding of what's going on with you mm. that's about as much as i can do at the moment so next time when you're feeling this get somebody trusted like the hairdresser beautician nail person and say can you look at my eyes i'm going to open them now and what you want them to do is to see whether it's going flick slow return flick Ooh, slow return yeah. flick slow return or even if they could right. film it, Shay. Yeah, so yeah, you can yeah, see for it. Because sure. I feel yeah. like I've seen different lash tutorial or reveal videos, ah. and I and you can see their eyelids. They are doing that, Shay. Different people. Yeah, their eyes are moving under their eyelids while oh. they're getting filmed. Yeah. Oh, because the eye has a bulge at the front, the cornea, the bulgy bit. So you don't have to actually have to open the eyes. You can just stare can at see. the closed eyelids, and you can see the bulge as though they're flicking left and right, as though they're watching in it invisible tennis match on the inside of their eyelids. Mm. And so when you get them to do this, Shay, you can do it with your eyes yeah. shut, get them to check whether it's going an equal speed left and right, left, right, left, right, or whether it's going left, right, left, you know, whether there's, yeah. there's a different speed. So can you get back to us and let us know what you find out? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. Oh, awesome. yeah. All these experiments we're giving people to do and homework. But oh. I get it, Shay. You want to relax. <laughs> I know. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> we'll have to see. Okay, so we've got Dan in Geelong here. Now, Dan, you might have cracked something. What's your question? <laughs> um, my question is whether we could use the cold water deep within the ocean to cool the earth by bringing it to the surface, essentially reverse the effects of global warming or, or cool the earth. I'm imagining when you're in a bath and you stick your hand in and you, you, you know, put all the water around just so it's all equalised. Mm. Could we essentially yeah, do that, so Dr Carl? Could sure. we take that water and bring it up to the top? Is that what you want to know, Dan? Yeah, it is, yeah. So obviously the water deeper down is cooler. If we brought that to the surface, would that reduce the overall atmospheric temperature and I guess bring the temperature of the earth down? Mm. Ah, Okay, so the average depth of the oceans, I'm trying to remember, I think it's about four and a half kilometres. So just the Pacific Ocean by itself is bigger than all of the land on Earth put together. And if you see the photos from space, you can sort of see the Pacific Ocean and there's a, a little bit of a rim of Australia and New Zealand and Asia and a bit of the North and South America, but basically you're looking at ocean. So the average depth is about four and a half kilometres. And what we've done with global warming, is we've heated up the top one kilometre with uh, by uh, one centigrade degree. We've also heated up the bottom eight kilometres of the atmosphere by one centigrade degree. The amount of heat we're throwing into the atmosphere each day with global warming, which, by the way, is totally reversible, and we can big bring this number to zero, but the amount of heat we're throwing in each day is 600,000 Hiroshima bombs worth of heat. So what we're looking at is trying to bring some of that colder water at the ocean and then bring it up. And could it reverse the temperature? Yes, but the effects 
I think it would actually because you've got a four to one ratio. You've got four kilometres of colder water and then one kilometre of warmer water, which would then interact with the atmosphere. By the way, 92% of that 600,000 Hiroshima bombs of heat per day goes into the oceans. And on one hand, it's bad that it did because, so in New South Wales, for example, in Australia, we've got this pool of hot water which is making it uncommonly humid. Mm. We're getting all sorts of storms. But if the heat had not gone into the oceans, the air temperature would be up around 75 degrees C and there'd be no life on Earth, thanks to the fossil fuel companies. Which And they knew what they were doing in 1990. But yes, it would theoretically work. I reckon it would work, but there'd be huge energy needed to do it. You could get that from renewables. But the damage to the ecosystem... And the oceans are essential for our lives. They give us half of our oxygen. So it's theoretically possible. I would call that an extreme um, geoengineering solution, which would kind of work. It's like saying, oh, look, mate, your fingernails are a bit long. I could cut your fingernails, but I'm just going to chop your whole arm off instead. Mm. Right, okay. It's, uh, it would theoretically work, but the consequences would be great. But it's a, a very interesting thought experiment. I never thought of that. Just- just with the logistics of bringing the water and what energy you would use, you need to do it to bring to bring it to the surface. Yep. Because of the pressure differential, so the the water at the bottom of the ocean is obviously under a lot of pressure than the top. With that, could you almost siphon that towards the top using the pressure gradient in the water, so you wouldn't actually need any energy to do it? While I was speaking words to you, another part of my brain was playing pictures in my head, and I think you're right, but I'm not a good enough physicist to work that out. I think it is possible to start the siphon going, and they did something like that in Hawaii, and it was called OTEC about 40 in, in the 1960s, and they were using the temperature difference of the water down there, which is about three degrees, between that and the surface water of 20 degrees to generate electricity, and they did that for a while. And I've forgotten what happened. So if somebody can ring in with the answer, I'd be very grateful. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Dr. Dan. What an inventive mind you have. Given us a lot to think about. And I hadn't even thought about, you know, even just with the ocean's temperatures, what that would do to the sea life if you did impact that. My God. Massive. Something would happen. Mm -hmm. We can definitely guarantee something would. We've got Layla on the Gold Coast here. Layla. Layla, talk to us. Hello, Layla. Look, Welcome. Thank you. Um, I My question is, about the week before my period comes, I get so hungry, so irritated, and I just turn into an absolute monster. And I was wondering why our period does that to our emotions and our hunger too. So your hunger changes? Yes, I get like incredibly hungry. This is something that the dietitians are still working on and we need an expert to help us with it. Um, I'm guessing the following. I'm guessing because I'm not a dietitian and I haven't done the 15 years of study. That what drives hunger is a whole bunch of things. The fact that there's no food in your tummy plus a whole bunch of emotional stuff like you have hunger, desire when you're feeling bad, you just want to eat your way out of the sadness. Um, and I'm guessing that and you know how that new generation of weight loss drugs that were originally for diabetes, but they essentially put you in the state of where you are after a meal so you don't feel so hungry. So there are a whole bunch of hormones involved, and this is a really dumb answer, and their, their balance is being changed. What the names of those hormones are and how they're changing, I don't know. I'm going to have to go and look this up on our good friend Google Scholar. So it's for a week before you feel hungry? Is, is, that, is that right? I just want to get the date right? Yeah, roughly like a week leading up to my period. Right, and you have increased hunger, and what else? 
and just irritated, just so irritated. Oh. So this is something that I feel like has come to light a little bit more, Layla. Have you heard of premenstrual dysphoric disorder, PMDD? What? I have heard. I have heard of PMD mm. before, yeah. So if you, like, you know, I don't know if you're exaggerating. I think sometimes we do. We think, I'm the worst person the week before my period. I'm a monster. But genuinely, if you do feel like you turn into a little bit of a monster, there could be a genuine reason for that. And it's really great to see that there's more kind of funding being put into researching this because these symptoms are much more severe than usual PMS and they do tend to appear a week or two before you begin menstruating. And some of the symptoms here, anger or irritability, feeling on edge, anxiety and panic attacks, depression, uh, difficulty concentrating, fatigue, food cravings, binge eating and changes in appetite. And the list goes on with all the usual stuff. But if you feel like... It's not just, oh, I feel like a little more chocolate and I'm a bit rude to my boyfriend. If it's more than that, then that could potentially be something that's contributing to it, PMDD. And I know a lot of people who menstruate who are discovering this about themselves, getting an official diagnosis. So I don't want to diagnose you or anything like that, but definitely something to look into. Sure. Um, there's no, a, that's so interesting. Yeah, I've never heard of it. Thank you so much, Dr. Lucy. Uh, premenstrual, one word, dysphoric, D-Y-S-P-H-O-R-I-C, disorder, mm. PMDD. And here's a US government site, the Office on Women's Health. Mate, I'd never heard. I yeah. have got to learn on this. Thank you so much. And I've so got much. several friends who often, you know, something that relieves symptoms is going mm-hmm. on hormonal birth control or antidepressants or doing a course of the two in line with your cycle. So it can be interesting, but I think obviously there are those changes. And, you know, Layla, be kind to yourself as well. If you want to kind of chat out a little more the week before your period, I say do it. But how come we didn't know about this a century ago, two centuries I because mean, I think I think for so long when it comes to reproductive health, we've just been told, oh, you women are crazy before your period. You're great. And, that, and that's what it's been put down to. Whereas this yeah. is, a, you know, if you've got someone who's having suicidal thoughts, this that's that's a concern. Well, on one hand, think of Apple, the company, and they've got a health app. They left out half the humans on the planet, right? By not having, by not having the tracker? The menstrual cycle tracker. Yeah. And number two... In the Nobel Prizes, they're the good ones, the um, the one in physics, in, in physiology and medicine was won by a woman who had discovered the technology, had really pushed it forward that we could give us a vaccine so quickly. For various sexist reasons, she had been pushed aside and fired from her university. The research that she was doing was good enough to give her a Nobel Prize and yet she was fired. <laughs> Okay, we'll roll our eyes. Okay, Lola, we'll have something for you. We have Harper who's texted in, a nutrition and dietetic student, and the reason women get hungry is during PMS, levels of progesterone and progesterones are peaking in the body and they're known to cause an increase in appetite. Also, our basal metabolic rate peaks to its highest when we're PMSing, which again stimulates our appetite. Thoughts? <sighs> Getting closer, learning okay. more. We'll have to find out more. And, of course, if you are feeling some kind of way, maybe you are menstruating and life's hitting a little bit different, you can always give Lifeline a call at 13 11 14 or hit up Headspace. We've got Tom from Springfield here. Tom, what's your question? You're taking us into the galaxy. Yeah, so in in retrospect to the Milky Way galaxy, I just want uh, Dr Carl's um, opinion on there being other galaxies out there that are quite similar to ours that possibly have another world that we don't even know about. 
Yeah. That's, it's more, more of a question, more of a, more of a, like, what do you think about that? Mm. Okay, so um, with the naked eye, uh, if you know where to look, you can just see this fuzzy blob in the sky, and that's with the naked eye, it's a fuzzy blob, but with a telescope, you can see the Andromeda galaxy, which is almost identical to ours, and it's got. Mm. So, so, uh, do you, Tom, did you ever do chemistry at school and hear about the Avogadro number? No, no. What is that? The Avogadro number is the <coughs> number of particles of something in the mole. So water is H2O, hydrogen is one, so two hydrogens is two. Oxygen has a weight of 16. So you put those numbers together, you get 18. If you've got 18 grams of water or 23 grams of sodium or whatever, if you've got that particular weight of something, you've got an Avogadro number of particles, which is six followed by 23 zeros. And by coincidence, the only reason I mention this is that by a coincidence that is roughly equal to, firstly, the number of stars in the observable universe. Notice I didn't say universe, I said observable universe. Mm. So six followed by 23 zeros is a very big number. And by the way, it's also roughly equal to the number of grains of sand on all the beaches on Earth, all these coincidences are coming. So is there a planet similar to ours? Yes, there has to be. The numbers are just so big. Is that what you're asking, Dr Tom? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mate, there has to be. And with the JWST, the Just Wonderful Space Telescope, we're getting closer to finding it. But we need the technology to get there. And at the moment, we're limited to... No, we can't even do 1% of the speed of light. But with the Alcubierre effect, we might be able to travel at faster than the speed of light and who knows what will happen in this century. Awesome. So are you saying, Dr Carl... There could be another Dr. Carl and Dr. Lucy somewhere out there in the universe. The numbers are big enough, man. <laughs> We've got Albie in Melbourne here. Albie, you saw something on YouTube recently that caught your eye. What was it? Um, it's called an electric, li- um, a lightning ball. Yep. All right. Oh, and I was wondering if, like, yeah. Yeah? Like, I was wondering how they occur. Have you ever seen one? Um, no. Neither have I. But we've had a few people ring in over the years who've actually seen them with their naked eye. Now, the ball of ball lightning, so here's some fancy talk, it's poorly understood, which is scientific talk for we don't know how it happens. They range in size from a grapefruit to the size of a small car. They're usually white, but they can be green in colour and other different colours. The you, you, You've heard of Benjamin Franklin and his experiment with the uh, kite and running a kite into a thunderstorm and getting electricity and charging up batteries with it. Did you hear about that? Can you explain? No. no. Yeah. So, he, so what he did was he got a kite and he made it run up into a thunderstorm, uh, which was having lightning, and the string got wet. And then um, electrical charge came down and then he tied a metal key. And he put the metal key next to a type of battery they had back then. This is Benjamin Franklin, a um, quarter of a thousand years ago in America, that, that guy. And the electricity went down the wire, not into him, and then into the key. Down, it went down the wet cord of the string into the key and charged up the battery. Mm. And then shortly after, a Russian guy heard about it and tried to do the experiment, and he did, and a ball of ball lightning the size of his fist came out of the string and hit him in the head and killed him. What? And we've seen cases of balls of ball lightning the size of a basketball land in a barrel of water, so we're talking like a couple of hundred litres, and boil it dry. 
Um, and nobody really believed in ball lightning until the 1960s when there was a midnight to dawn flight from New York to Florida. And in this case, there were a bunch of electrical engineers. And the plane's climbing up and there's lightning happening all over the place. And then suddenly... Out of the fuselage of the plane, like the, you know, the metal skin of the plane, where somebody's sitting, suddenly this ball sort of morphs through the wall. It then, luckily, because it can be fatal, goes down the aisle of the aeroplane at roughly chest height and everybody's looking at it and they're all engineers going, there it is, do you see it? Yeah, I see it, I see it. Nobody had cameras back then. And then it became suddenly respectable. It merged with the back of the plane, the skin at the back of the plane and went out into the night leaving everybody thinking, yes, ball lightning is real. So I am insanely jealous if anybody's seen it. I haven't seen it. We do not know what causes it. It's still poorly understood. Is that enough of a get you interested in it, Dr. Albie, and you could maybe, is, is that getting you started? Yep, thanks. we got Kerry from Longford here. Now, we did just have a question about lightning balls from Albie. Kerry, you got another follow-up question about lightning. Yes, I do. I was watching a storm the other week and I was counting the time between the flashes, which seemed periodic, but then noticed that sometimes the lightning looks white and sometimes it looks yellow. And I was just wondering why there's different colours and what affects that. Mm. Overwhelmingly, it's white. So you get what's called a stepped leader, like step, stepping, step ed, stepped leader, which stutters down to the ground at about 100 kilometres a second, maybe the diameter of your arm carrying 100 amps, 100 kilometres a second. When it gets close to the ground, there's a return stroke that's moving at 100 thousand kilometres a second. Um, that's one third of the speed of light carrying 20, 30,000 amps. Um, and you can't actually see it moving up unless you've got ultra high speed cameras. Overwhelmingly, because of the high temperatures, the actual light itself close up is white. But as you get further away, different things can be involved. So you can have dirt in the air and it's been raining fairly heavily where we are and I've got an underground water tank and each, like this this morning, I scooped out of the uh, filter a chicken egg of dirt. Mm. Now, it's hard to believe that the amount of, that, that was not off the roof because the roof's been washed clean. So in the air above us in Sydney, which is a pretty clean Sydney city, enough rain carrying a chicken egg size of dirt lander. So the dirt in the air can influence it, plus other chemicals, plus the distance. And then you can have different um, densities and they can bend the light and make it interfere with each other. So at the site, it's uh, white, but then all these different conditions uh, make it different colours. And once again, that old cop-out phrase, poorly understood. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Thank and, you. And, and by the way, how close does the lightning get to you? Uh, it wasn't that close. It just looked like the two colours were coming from the same spot, but obviously one must Ooh. have been further away. No, no, no. Look, don't know. But by the, so, do you do do you do the trick of counting the number of seconds and then dividing by three to give you the kilometres? You know, that uh, trick? I'm not. I'm not. Yeah, I kind of. I'm not quite that technical. But so it seemed. So what do you do? Is you see a flash. <laughs> you see a flash, and then you count one thousand, two thousand, three, and. If it's three seconds, it's one kilometre away. If it's six seconds, it's two kilometres away. If it's 30 seconds, it's um, 10 kilometres away. So you just um, count the seconds and divide by three and it gives you uh, – and that will be the time between the flash 
and the sound reaching your ears. And it gives you the distance away that it is. So maybe with the next time with the yellow and the red, actually count the time between when you see the flash and you hear the thunder and then get back to us. And maybe the we'll yellow do. ones will be further or closer, I don't know. Awesome, I'll give it a go. Thank you, Dr Kerry. I actually Thank re- you. I remembered I had a question for you as yeah. well. It's raining so much, particularly where we are here on the East Coast. It's been raining. I thought La Nina was over. I thought we were in El Nino. What is going on? I feel like it's been raining more than ever. We're gently heading towards weather patterns shifting, but it is reversible. All we have to do is bring our carbon emissions to zero, which we can do easily in 10 years. as a political thing, not a scientific thing. And what's happened is that We've got this abnormally large blob of abnormally warm water off the coast of New South Wales. Now, think about water on a stove. It just sits there. As you heat it up, you can see little tiny droplets of water in the air. So the higher the temperature, the faster it evaporates. So this blob of warm water is evaporating faster than normal, increasing the humidity like crazy. I've been measuring... 91% outside the house, which is really high for this time of year. Mm. I've got one of those stupid little weather stations. Okay. And an anemometer. Uh, You know, the thing, the little balls that spin around. So So it's just purging, if you will. Yeah, so so it's just the water vapour is purging out of the oceans. It's rising and then it has to go somewhere and it either causes humidity, if you're lucky, which is not that lucky, or humidity and massive storms. Mm. Okay. Uh, And by the way, uh, I found out why they call it an anemometer because it comes from the Greek animus, meaning life, and so the little ball, the other thing with the three balls that spins around, it's alive with the wind. The wind is giving it life, and so that's why they call it an anemometer. What a weird name. Nanometer. Anemometer. A-N-E-N-O-M-E-T-E-R, I think. Anemometer. I might have the spelling wrong. Well, thank you. I get to ask a question. We've got Isabella here from Victoria. Now, you've got a pretty crazy image in your head. Talk us through it. I'm just wondering if you were on the moon and you were like you could breathe on the moon and you had your helmet or something on, but you were wearing a bathing suit or a bikini, how would the sun affect you? Like, would you tan? Would you burn really badly? What would happen? Uh, okay. Um, assuming that you had a way of letting the undiluted sunlight land on your skin... At the top of the Earth's atmosphere, which is the same distance as the moon, the sunlight coming from the sun is 10%. Sorry, it's 10% ultraviolet. 10% of the light coming from the sun is ultraviolet, but by the time it gets down to ground level, it's only 2%. So you would burn five times faster. Right. And it would burn you to a crisp, really. Well, no. Luckily, you've got what... Basically, you're a machine shifting 50,000 tonnes of water inside your body every 24 hours. And so even though your skin gets hot, water comes from inside and takes the heat away and then you breathe it out. So so you won't burn to a crisp, but you would get very badly sunburned. Oh, Um, thank you. I'm I'm sorry to have bad news. We just want to have a a pool party on the moon. Uh, (laughs) Damn it. Thanks, Isabella. Thank you, Isabella. (laughs) Thank you. We got Chelsea from Canberra here. Now, Chelsea... You went through a bit of a strange instance when you were getting a soda water out of the fridge. What happened? Um, yeah, so last week I took a bottle of soda water out of my fridge to drink and when I opened it, it instantly turned from liquid to ice and you could see it turning to ice all the way from the top down to the bottom and I'm just wondering what on earth has happened. Wow, how lucky of you to see that. How long did it take? Was it like a thousandth of a second or a couple of seconds or an hour? 
Um, probably a few seconds. Really? Like you see it in front of your eyes. Yeah, Are we talking about a block of ice or was it just getting icier? Oh, no. It was, now, yeah. Did you try poking it with a stick and see if it was hard or was it sort of mushy ice? Mm, it looked solid but not super solid like an ice cube. It was enough to be so solid that I couldn't really get any liquid out of the bottle when I was trying to drink it. It was like the shape of the bottle was ice. Basically. Ah, can I just ask you a, a related question? Was it really cold uh, for the for that day in the, the previous few days, uh, as compared to being hotter before? Did you have a hot spell followed by a cold spell, uh, which is when you took the ice out, the, the the soda water out of the fridge? And the only thing I could think is it sits on the top shelf at the back, which usually tends to get more airflow or cold air on it. So maybe that something to do with it. Uh, I agree with you 100%. So what you've got is this magic box and you plug it in and it makes cools for you. And what it does is very cold cools. And so it chucks the air into the freezer and that's at about minus 15. And then the air kind of falls down and they've got valves and stuff. So the two temperatures in your refrigerator should be about minus 15, minus 18 in the freezer. And in the general fridge section, it's about four. But you said you got it high up at the back. And if that's where the air is falling down, it could have been at, say, minus one. You know, and by the time it gets to the next level, it might have been plus one. And and you wouldn't really notice the difference. But if you had a, a liquid container water there, it would be subject to that cold falling air. And what we're looking at here is something called the nucleation effect. So... Um, you've got three states of matter generally, solid, liquid and gas. And the water can be a gas if you heat it up to 100 degrees C and solid at uh, minor, yeah, below zero and in between it's water. And it will change state uh, if you either change the temperature or you can push it a bit further to make it change state. Let me explain. So you can, if you've got really pure water, you can take it down to minus 10. So that thing about water freezing at zero, that's just an approximation. You can take, if you've got ultra pure water, you can take it to minus 10. And then what you do is you drop in a single grain of sand. And that acts as what they call a nucleation center. And that helps the water change. I won't go into the physics of it. And then you can just see the whole thing turn. In your case, did you open the bottle to make it happen? Or did you put it down on a bench with a bit of a tap? Um, open the bottle lid. Right. Okay. So on one hand, you can leave the bottle closed if it's, say, at minus four, and then you put it down with a bit of a thump. So you put it down gently on the table and nothing happens. You put it down with a bit of a thump and then that creates enough of a shock wave which then will make some of the gas in the bottle come out of solution and those little bubbles act as a shock wa- as nucleation centres and it spreads. In your case, when you release the pressure, you get all the bubbles released and they individually act as nucleation centres. So so in your case, that's perfectly safe and bartenders see this all the time and it's kind of, if you get a, a little wooden stick, it's sort of mushy. Wow. You can have, But you can have the bad thing happening at the other end when somebody wants to make a cup of tea and they put the water in the microwave in a cup and there's no stirring. Like, you know, you've got it on a stove, you've got the water rising in the middle, then going to the outside, then falling down. You've got even temperature all the way through. But if the water 
is in the microwave. It's being moved around, rotated, but you don't get actually stirring inside the water. So what you can have is water at the top is 99 degrees C and underneath, maybe near the bottom, it's 101. And then the um, you get your tea bag and you put it in and tea bag's got lots of dust in it and the tea bag dust particles... They will go perfectly fine through the 99-degree water, go into the 101-degree seawater, and suddenly it changes state. They act as nucleation centres, fancy word, look it up in Wikipedia, and suddenly it expands in volume by 1,700 times. Wow. It turns from liquid water into steam, and the person suddenly gets a face full of boiling water, like 100 degrees C, you shouldn't go above 55, and they end up in hospital. This happens maybe a dozen times around Australia each year. So that's a thing to look out for. Mm. So you, you're very lucky in seeing that. I'm, I'm, I'm very jealous, Chelsea, <laughs> that you actually saw it. I'll, be try, I'm, I'll try harder at our place to make it happen. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's super interesting. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Chelsea. Yeah, experiment. We've got Matt from Rivers Creek. Matt, what do you want to know? I'm just wondering if I can get some truth to this. I was listening to a podcast from a scientist in America who said the sunset that you're looking at is actually already happening. It's five minutes behind due to the light from the sun coming through the atmosphere and it, and it bending like an arc. So it's it's already actually happened And you're when you're looking at it. Is, um, is there any truth to that? 100% correct. And the amount... The, the sun is misplaced is roughly equal to one sun diameter. So when you can see, uh, and it's pretty safe to stare at a red sunset, when you can see the bottom of the sun kiss the horizon, it's not there. The light has been bent by the atmosphere. If you could remove the atmosphere, suddenly you'd see just the top of the sun. So that's at sunrise and sunset. In each case, it's bent by roughly one sun diameter. So that scientist was 100% correct. And he also mentioned that the sunrise is the exact opposite. Is that that also correct? Yeah. So, I yeah. So the sun is, yeah. So in each case, the sun is already is below the horizon when you first or last see it. Perfect. I was in Japan and I watched a sunset on one of the famous sky towers and I clapped when it uh, ended and no one else did. Oh, <laughs> hang on. You're in Japan. Were you in a city or out in the sticks? In the city. Could you see the sun actually kiss the horizon or did yes. it vanish into the pollution? It kissed the horizon. We oh saw it go all the way down. We all waited and watched and I went, woo, and no one else clapped. That's, that's <laughs> wonderful they've cleaned up their air. That's fantastic. Oh, it was beautiful. We got Jason in Harvey Bay. Jason, Jason. you got a question about gravity. Yes, I have. Uh, hi, Dr. Carl and Dr. Lucy. Just wondering, how does gravity affect or act on things that aren't magnetic? Ah, gravity has nothing to do with magnetism. There's three oh, yeah. regular forces, which are the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force and the electromagnetic force, and they involve particles and waves. And then there's gravity, and gravity is different. Gravity is the curvature of space. I'll give you the wonderful words of John Wheeler at the University of Texas at Austin. Mass, like the mass of the sun, tells mm -hmm. space how to bend and then other mass will follow that curved space. So the sun curves the space around us, uh, around itself, and to stop falling down that gravity well, the planets have to move around in a circular motion with enough outward force to balance the falling down the hill. So gravity is nothing to do with magnetism. I'm okay. sorry. I'm yeah. sorry to break your heart. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. <laughs> 
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Science with Dr. Carl. And if you want a little more Carl and Loose in your life, I don't blame you. Take a scroll through the podcast feed, check out previous episodes, and remember to subscribe or like while you're there so you can be part of the Science with Dr. Carl fam. This episode was produced by Bernadette Newen and Lou Hill. I'm Lucy Smith, and I'll catch you next week. Bye. Dave Marchese here from the Triple J Hack team. Hey, if you love Dr. Carl's podcast like I do, you might enjoy the Hack podcast as well. Each day we bring you the news that matters to you, from the latest science on climate change to what's happening in politics and news around the world. The Hack podcast. It's your daily fix of the news you need to know. Get it wherever you're listening now.